hello, hello, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us today. There she goes. I'm so excited to be here for our 23rd episode of A Girl Like Me Live, which is a live interacting streaming series, which takes place once a month where we sit down and talk about different issues that affect and impact women. And today I'm so excited to be joined by Dawn Everett. Um, I'm going to allow her to introduce herself now. Well, Cece, I am thrilled to be here. Um, my name is Dawn Averett, and I um, have a, a long uh, history and relationship with uh, the Well Project and um, HIV. I was diagnosed with HIV in 1988, so 34 years ago this past summer. Um, I suspect there are people, Cece, you might be one of them, who have only been around <laughs> Or alive that long. <laughs> um, and uh, in 2000, I took some time away from uh, my activist work and I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And while I was doing that, I dreamt up this thing called the Well Project. And so in 2002, started building um, the, the foundation for what is now the Well Project and, um, and something that I'm deeply, deeply proud of. Um, I work with the Organization on the Women's Research Initiative on HIV and AIDS, our, our WRI, and I just do a bunch of boards, panels, task force, mom things, all kinds of stuff. So that's probably enough. Oh, that was great. So I don't think y'all heard her. This is Dawn. She's the founder of the Well Project that we are here, you know, representing. And it has been so impactful in so many different people's lives. So thank you, Dawn. And I'm honored to be sitting here talking to you. Um, the Well Project has been phenomenal. So today's conversation is in honor of National HIV AIDS and Agent Awareness um, Day. And Yes, you're right when you say that you've been diagnosed as long as I've been alive. That's why every time I'm like, yeah, it was 1988. I know she was diagnosed that year because it was my birth year. 34 years is a long time. Wow. It is a long time. It's a really what long time. Was it like? like I, so by the time I maybe even started hearing of what HIV and AIDS were, it was sometimes in the 90s. You, you were already living with it by the time the nineties got here. What was that like? You know, it's kind of, it, it's crazy to try to, to um, explain what that was like, partially because I don't really know what the alternative was. <laughs> you know, I was 19 when I was diagnosed and um, you know, many people have heard me tell my story. have heard me say, I didn't know another positive woman in the world. Um, and, you know, in, in the mid to late eighties, there was, you know, um, this enormous stigma. Um, I want to say different than the stigma now in some ways, um, because the stigma now is very real. Um, and I don't want to pretend that back in the eighties, it was, you know, different and harder. Cause I think it's, it's, there are, there are some really interesting distinctions between what stigma felt like then and now. Um, and there are a lot of things that are still the same. That's so weird about it. You know, we've made so much progress and we've come so far and, and I'm sitting here talking to you. I mean, when I was diagnosed, literally the doctor who diagnosed me had never diagnosed another woman and, you know, um, life expectancy from an AIDS diagnosis then was six months and, you know, um, so it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really different time. Uh, you know, the doctor who diagnosed me said, and I think this comes, I want to give him, I, I, I try hard to always couch this by saying, I think he was doing the best he could at the time, but he, he told me not to read anything. It was too confusing and not to tell anyone because it would ruin my family's life. So, you know, the, the, the experience of being diagnosed in 1988 was, was crazy looking back on it now, but, um, you know, I did ultimately end up telling people, but it took a while. And for a long time, it was this enormous secret that was like carrying around the nuclear bomb, right? Like, you know, 
oh my gosh, what if I do something that triggers this thing? Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, I call it the great liberation when, when I, because I was fortunate enough to be able to tell, to speak openly about my status and I had the support of my family, you know, I was diagnosed with my parents in the room, so I didn't have to figure out how to tell them. Um, so I had a really different experience in some ways than, than so many of the people that, that I've, I've been able to, you know, advocate on behalf of over the years. So, um, you know, it's kind of extraordinary now uh, to be here and realize what the front row seat looks like from the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Um, I'm doing a lot of reflection these days. Maybe that's part of aging. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is because I started it in my 30s. I've started reflecting back as well. And I'm just sitting here, I'm trying to hold it together, keep it together, CC, because you know, being diagnosed in 2008, which was what, 20 years after your diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I, that life expectancy, you know, we had Google access to that then. Sorry, my dog likes to bark sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I did, I did rely on Google to like, you know, tell me how long I was going to live. And I gave myself a life expectancy as well. And there, it wasn't that long, but it was definitely longer than six months. So yeah. maybe that goes to show that, you know, advances were being made. But then also the fact that you've been able, you got 34, almost 35 years in this. That makes me know that I can live, you know, at least 35 years and watch you do it so gracefully. Um, it's, it's amazing. See, so you got a long way to go. You know, I we used to do these um, Operation Thrive classes in my first, the first organization I worked for, which was the Aid Survival Project in Atlanta, and and I would, we would be like, okay, so here's the deal: you're gonna live longer than you think you are. So don't rob a bank, don't steal a car, don't use all your money to buy a Lamborghini because you'll be here to pay it off, and that'll stink. You know, so <laughs> I think I think you know, kind of, and that was just. At that point, it was still pretty aspirational. I mean, we didn't even have great, you know, treatment options and we didn't know as much as we know now. But even then we were saying, like, you know, some portion of this is, you know, believing that, you know, that there are things you still have to do. Um, and I think that my, a lot of my my retrospection has been coming because my oldest daughter turned 20 in June and I was diagnosed at 19. Um, and, you know, and then my second one turned 18 and they're both now not living at home anymore. And I'm off at college and, and I'm everything, everything is kind of in this constant, you know, review of all of the incredible things that seemed like weren't possible um, when I was diagnosed. And, you know, we kind of look, look around and be stunned. I'm stunned and I'm amazed and I'm grateful. And oh, this, I'm so, oh. So I'm gonna jump in just straight into the questions from the community advisory yeah. board because they hit so many great ones. Um, Maria first wanted to just express her gratitude for you creating this space and you have helped so many women, you know, including herself. So wanted to give you those well wishes first. Um, I, it was brought up in the in a discussion about children that were born with HIV back then. Sometimes when we think of like aging with HIV, you think that, you know, it has to be an older individual mm. or, you know, someone that is older than you. Masanya pointed out the fact that there are many children who were born with it who are technically aging with HIV. Are, are, do you all share a lot of the <laughs> same spaces? Or do we make sure... I, you know, I think that's a great question. It's something that um, 
maybe it's our language, maybe it's our terminology, maybe we have to shake that up a little bit. I mean, um, first of all, I think we should think about aging as kind of um, refining, like, you know, fine wine or something rather than like, you know, deteriorating, which is unfortunately mm -hmm. sometimes the way it feels. And it's also sometimes the way it's kind of uh, put out there. Um, but the experience of living with HIV over the long term for me is actually, I think that that for me is in some ways front and center. That's big, that's bigger than aging. Aging is happening kind of, it's part of the context, but really what I think that we share, um, you know, the, the people I know who were born with HIV and who are 25, 35, even 40 now, um, are, um, are basically walking in some ways this, a very similar path to the one I'm walking, which is, you know, <laughs> years ago, one of my activist friends and a very well-known um, uh, gay male uh, activist who I love dearly and have learned a lot from used to say to me, you know, you're kind of our canary in a coal mine. And I, it's a horrible expression and also, um, there's some truth to that. And I think those of us who've been living with HIV for a really long time, whether we were, you know, whether we were born with it, we were teenagers when we got it, or we were 35 when we got it, um, there, I think there are more similarities in that duration of what your body is managing and what your, um, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically dealing with, I think there are more similarities than there are differences. Um, you know, there are other things that naturally happen to an aging body, to a person who, you know, I, much to my great dismay, I often think I should be able to do everything I did when I was 25 or 30. And then, you know, my, my youngest says, Hey, chase me down the road. And I think, why do my legs feel like tree trunks? <laughs> Um, but you know, um, but I think the, the, the point from my perspective is, is, is that the living with HIV over the long term is something we share. Um, and that is, um, you know, there are some big complications with aging, but there's some big complications with being 35 years old, having had HIV your entire life and trying to make big decisions about whether or not you'll, have children, whether or not, you know, what kind of things that you need to, to think about as you're thinking about entering midlife. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like living with HIV as a 53 year old for 34 years is um, inherently harder. It's just different in some ways. Thank you, Freddie. I think that these intergenerational conversations are so important. And, you know, just being able to see and hear the perspective of someone else. I I have become wiser in my life and looking at the experiences of those who have, you know, reached a greater age before I have. And I, I'm soaking it all in. And like, what do I have to look forward to? What are things that I can do, you know, now that can make my life different, you know, than maybe what someone else is experiencing? Yeah. You know, and I appreciate it. Um, you're getting so much love and kudos from the comment section. I just oh. want you to know. Um, Joe yeah, talks you about her you, you, you can tell them that I, that, that I, I can't see the comments. <laughs> I have to read through the bifocals. So I'll have to get to see them later, I hope. <laughs> uh, intergenerational is brilliant. I cannot take credit for that term. I have heard that thrown around a lot. But yes, definitely, I appreciate that and we need it. And the different age, um, stages where we were diagnosed as well. Bridget, she talks about how, you know, women are diagnosed at different stages in their life. You know, what would you have to say to someone, a woman who was diagnosed maybe in their 20s or 30s or 40s, what would you have to say? Well, I mean, the first thing, uh, the first thing I would say to anyone who is newly diagnosed is um, 
this is a part of your life, but this is not who you are. Um, I think I have one of those great pet peeves. People will sometimes say, are you HIV? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I am not HIV. I am Dawn. Mm -hmm. HIV is a part of my life and we live together. We've got, we've worked out a lot of hard stuff over the years and, you know, we manage to cohabitate me and HIV, but HIV is not who I am. And, um, and to somebody who's newly diagnosed, knowing that HIV is, um, is a part of your life and is a part of who you are. Um, like many other experiences and things in your life, um, but the choice to live with HIV is something that only you can make. Um, and, you know, in the early days, when you asked me about the, what it was like in the early days, in the early days, there was a lot of um, dying, dying with HIV. Um, and totally understandable. We didn't know. Um, there's so much we didn't know. And, you know, if you turned on CNN or, you know, the news of any kind, it was about a death sentence and a life, you know, threatening disease and a terminal illness and a condition. And it was really hard not to be um, both labeled, but also to take that in and, and, and embody that in some way. And um, the choice to live with it, um, even though it's, it's a bad deal. I mean, there are all kinds of things we live with that we don't love living with taxes. I mean, not that HIV and taxes are the same thing, but you know what I'm trying. <laughs> um, there's, there, there's a, but there's a process to that and to be kind to yourself and to be gentle with yourself. And for some, I mean, I know people who were diagnosed and in a week were out in the streets marching. And I know people who were diagnosed and it took 20 years before they went back to the doctor and, we each have to chart our own path um, and our own course, and it will evolve. I think that was one of the things I didn't, I didn't get in the beginning. Like, you know, um, you're either HIV negative or you're HIV positive as if it was that linear. Um, and we are all shades of gray. <laughs> we are all shades of gray and it, it looks different at different times. Um, but we have so many tools and, you know, biomedical tools are one piece of it, but we have tools like each other, like this, this is a tool, this experience of knowing and connecting and being with other people and being able to kind of look to someone else on those days when you can't look inside. I have... So, so, so many of those days, I have had so many of those days where I have, I have looked to all of you um, and I have um, looked to the uh, work and the passion and the kindness and the generosity of um, men and women of all kinds, cis, trans, non-binary, don't want to declare buzz off. Don't ask me. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like we, the humanity keeps me going. Um, and so to somebody who's newly diagnosed today, it would be this, this opportunity to say, um, HIV is a part of your life. Um, don't let it take over. Don't let it take control because it's yours. Oh, you're going to have me crying. I have to really stay focused. So I'm, <laughs> I loved it. I had the thought yesterday of, I've probably, it's been four years since I've come online and professed my, um, announced my HIV status. And before those four years, it was a decade of me feeling like I was by myself, like that there was no one else that if I disclosed to someone that, I would be the only person in their life that they knew living with HIV. So much of that. And since I have found community and connected to community, it has been life changing. Like 
just knowing that there is a group of people and specifically here at the well project a group of women who understand at least that facet of my life they understand that yes you know we may have other things in common but this piece you understand and i'm i'm so grateful um you see, you have made such an impact on so many people's lives, and I, you, you're, I hope you know, or you, you probably, you can't know, actually, but um, trust. I hope you can trust that that impact um, is just extraordinary, and that the more that you're able to give, the more you get back, and I have to remember in all of this that this is a privilege, too, that, that you have, a, this is a my privilege, your privilege, and not not everyone, not everyone can be public, not everyone can share, not everyone has this kind of community, but but um, define it, define family, define community, define the define the thing that that gives you strength. Some people, it's the you know, it's their three four legged friends, they're the dogs, the cats, the whatever wherever that wherever that tie is into community um appreciate it seize it acknowledge it it's real um and you know i, I sit here on this computer right now talking to you wishing desperately we were in the same place but we're not um and thinking oh my god i am so incredibly fortunate um, and, you know, after living with HIV for 34 years, I can actually say that to people when I meet them and they say this horrible thing that you've been living with. And I can say, I'm, you know, I don't wish HIV on anyone ever for any reason. And, um, I am so grateful for what I have found in me and in my community and in the people around me. Um, and I feel really grateful for that. Absolutely. You can, like the, the spirit, the essence of, you know, all of what this organization represents, we appreciate you. So thank you for pulling, pouring your experience, you know, even back then for creating something that we didn't yet know that we needed. Someone especially like me. So thank you. Um, you know Gina Brown came with the questions. Gina Brown has some questions for you. Excellent. She said, first of all, we gotta talk about menopause. Whether or not it's your story yet, you know, we have to talk about menopause and HIV. What is that like? What a pain in the ass. Can I say that? I, we're, uh, <laughs> menopause. Oh. You know, I mean, it, yes. Uh, so I, I, um, I want a better. I want a better term. I want a better name. I want to. I want to be like. I, I needed to make it part of my superhero cape or something because, um, boy, menopause just has taken the stuffing out of me. I freaking. I. It's. It's so frustrating from my perspective because it happens to all of us. It's a natural process. It's a part of being a woman and, and, and still it's part of being, it is so, it's like a black box. Like you go and ask for information. I mean, it's, it, well, here's what I tell. Well, here's what I tell everyone. For the first 25, 30 years of my life, whenever I had an issue that doctors couldn't figure out, they would just say, "Well, you know, you do have HIV." Um, so, like HIV was the, you know, everything is it's because mm -hmm. of HIV. Mm -hmm. When you get to be fifty something, in my case, fifty two, um, and I had questions, concerns, complaints. Nobody even mentions HIV anymore. Now they just say, well, you are of that age. And, yeah, you know, menopause does cause basically everything, anything, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to, whatever you want to blame on it, it's menopause. Um, so that, that has been a really um, 
kind of eye-opening and super frustrating uh, experience for me because I feel like the default um, in terms of uh, kind of how society deals with menopause. Like there's a lot of like, oh, unless it's other women who then say, what the hell, you know, <laughs> like, my body isn't my own. I don't recognize this. And then, then I meet women who are like, oh yeah, piece of cake. Really? Yes, there are women who think that this was no big damn deal, but that has not been my experience. My experience has been, um, it's been subtle. It is not, I have been not been one of those um, women who all of a sudden am drenched in sweat from head to toe and, you know, have those, I, I don't know how they can even call them hot flashes, whatever, the hot hurricanes that come on. Um, but but it's been um, emotionally how I process things and think about things. It's been sleep. It's been um, it's been just like processing what it is to be in my mid fifties and try to reconcile what is probably a normal process of thinking about your life and where you are in life with and what does that mean with this you know, condition I live with, <laughs> HIV. Um, so yeah, menopause is, is, a, is a tough one, I think. And it's, it's not short for most people. It takes a long time. Um, and it is, um, I think it's a moment where we have to, first of all, we have to, we have to participate in research. <laughs> we have to tell our care providers and our thought leaders and everyone around us, um, even those who don't want to listen, that we need answers and we need to understand how, you know, to, to stay well, to feel well, to be well. Don't just tell me to exercise more. Don't just tell me I should be eating right. Um, how does this change how my medications work? Um, what other things, you know, do I want to do hormone replacement or don't I want to do hormone replacement therapy? What do you really understand about, you know, cardiovascular disease and heart health, um, you know, as, as we get older um, and overlay years of antiretroviral therapy and all of this other stuff. So I, now I'm like sounding horribly pessimistic. It's not pessimistic. I'm just pissed off that we don't have answers. Um, and, uh, you know, on one hand, I feel like I've worked damn hard for the silver you see in my hair. And, um, when my daughters were like, maybe you should, you know, put a little color in there. I said, listen, <laughs> I've, I've decided that this is my silver jewelry or platinum jewelry. Um, and you know, um, I'm trying to embrace this this, you know, part of life. Um, and there are so many amazing things about being in your fifties. I mean, the truth is we'll pitch and moan and complain about it all day long. And then somebody says, if you could go back to being 20, would you? And almost universally women are like, Oh, hell no, 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 really? no. no. <laughs> so, let's not make it all bad. Let's not okay. make it all bad. It's not all bad, but it is, it is like, um, it's a little like somebody kind of rotates, you know, your world a little bit on an axis and all of a sudden everything's a little off kilter and you don't really know why. Um, at least that's been my experience. I'm sure, I'm sure there are inevitably there's somebody who's been like, ah. <laughs> not a problem uh -oh. for me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing it. I you know, I just assumed that menopause just means that your body stops, like you stop in a cycle and you get hot sometimes. But the way that you have explained it, you know, and what I have been able to observe from other individuals, like other women, my mom and, you know, I and stuff, it just, it, it seems like it does take you through something at the, or do you find support again in other community, like pockets of community there? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's the crazy thing is there's stigma around menopause. I think there's stigma around menopause 
universally. I don't think that that's just for women with HIV, but overlay that with HIV. And there's real, like, there's a stigma. There's kind of a like, oh, everyone has to do this. Your mother did it. Your grandmother did it. Get over it. Uh, you know what I mean? There's this, there, there's a bit of a, there's not, there's not a ton of room. Although increasingly more and more women are talking, um, there's not a ton of room for kind of openly saying, what is this? Does this make sense to you? Are you experiencing this? How do we navigate? Um, and what do we tell the doctor when they're like, meh, you know, like, how do we, how do we push through? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something we have to do a better job of talking about. I wanted to ask you because you said earlier, you know, speak to your providers, speak to your thought leaders. How, like, is it as simple as that? Like, how do we get the research done? Kind of alluding to Krista's comment earlier. How do we get the research done? <laughs> so it's never as simple as that. Um, <laughs> no, the short answer. Um, but um, here's what happens when I talk to my doctor and you talk to your doctor and Krista talks to her doctor and Bridget talks to her doctor and there, there's more conversation and there's more pressure and there's more kind of openness and unwillingness to let their, you know, kind of no answer be an answer. Um, then you start to see momentum build. Um, and then for those of us who do advocacy around research, we, we have something to use to capitalize on. We have stories, we have experiences, we have, we have the ability to say, it's not just about me. Let me talk to you about these other women that I know and this other experiences that I'm having. And then clinicians who are tuned in start to say, you know, I had no idea, but like seven of the women I've talked to this week have the same thing because I asked them and it turns out they've all had it and they, nobody ever told me. The point is that as we, as we open those doors for conversation, we create momentum and they, and we're able to leverage that momentum. Um, you know, I, I just screened for a clinical trial um, looking at heart health, uh, cardiovascular disease one, because I want to know, I want to understand. I think it might look different in women. This study is actually looking to see if it looks different in women. And, and I'm, I feel super grateful, but it's taken years to get, some of that stuff done. And sometimes it isn't that there are, that no doctors care or no researchers care. Sometimes there are, the funders aren't aimed in the right direction, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we really, what we have is our voice. We, uh, our collective voices are far more powerful than I think sometimes any of us realize. Um, and asking the questions Every time, mm -hmm. every time until we feel like we're getting the answers we need. I mean, that's, that is what has driven. I mean, here's what HIV has. Here's what we have to be so incredibly proud of. The rate at which new treatments have been developed and our understanding of the disease has um, advanced over the last two decades is extraordinary. It's unlike anything, any other disease condition out there. And it is actually what was leveraged to respond to COVID was, uh, was HIV, it, our experience and what we were doing and looking at in HIV. So um, that um, experience came from people not being willing to be told there are no answers or we have nothing for you or, you know, check back next year, you know, that came from um, us kind of saying repeatedly, no, we need answers. We need information. We need, we need to do better. Um, one of the challenges is sometimes we get the research out there and research has been really far from a lot of us and a lot of our communities. And there are lots of reasons to not trust it um, historically that undermine so much of what we do. So 
um, we have some hurdles, which is we can use our voices, but we also have to be willing, I think, to engage. Whether it's, that doesn't mean you have to be on a study. Maybe it's you serve on an advisory board. Maybe you, you know, share information with other people in your support group. Maybe you, you know, whatever the thing is you can do, but, but I think we have to engage, truly. Absolutely. And I'm, when you say something like a clinical trial or anything of that sort, it doesn't sound like that's something I can do. Like, it doesn't sound like I should be in a clinical trial. But just even opening my mind and the perspective that, yeah, I can and you can study me because this is to help. And the change probably is not going to come as quickly as we like. But I am a big advocate for, you know, saying something so that it's better for the people that come after me. And that's what you've done. Well, that, that is the gift of women are so, we are wired that way, right? There, there's this altruism, this like, well, you know, how can I contribute? And, and that's beautiful. However, um, like I, 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 it's interesting to me that you say, uh, that's not something I could do. Why? Because you don't know where it is or because it's probably takes too much time or like what, what is the, why couldn't you? It sounds like a clinical trial doesn't sound like, it sounds too big. Like it sounds yeah. like what? Cl- like professional. You have yeah. To be certified. What, you have certified. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, well, I mean, so much of, so much of our challenge is language, right? Um, and people don't know that there's clinical there there are clinical trials that involve you know procedures there are clinical trials that involve medications there are pr- clinical trials that involve diagnostics but then there are there are clinical trials which are also or research studies that are just about your experience like how do you feel on a day-to-day basis there are research studies that just collect information about what your experience is and compare it to others' experience so we can learn more. So so sometimes the term clinical trials sounds, like you said, like something you have to be specially qualified to do. It's yeah, clinical trials, not on the space station. You do not have to be an astronaut. You can actually, you are an expert. I mean, you're an expert in HIV and living in H- living with HIV. Your experience is extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable. And that's one of the things that I think sometimes is hard for us to gather. I mean, you have a, we, we all deal with stigma on some level. I still deal with stigma. Um, and I say that, that sounded very, um, like somehow I got the pass and I don't have to deal with stigma. No, I deal with stigma. Are you kidding me? And when I... Nothing worse than showing up in an ER and having to like tell the gargoyle at the desk what, you know, what you're on and, you know, go through all of the questions and all of that stuff. So, you know, I, I just want, I want us to make this stuff accessible because this is how we learn and it's how we, um, well, often how we survive, but certainly how we contribute to our community, how we, how we take that power. Um, you know, so a lot of the work that I do focuses on clinical trials, design and development and how to engage us, the people who really need to know and need to be a part. And so much of it is things like, you know, they can't do studies without us. If we don't participate, the studies don't happen. You know? So so we are partners. We're partners. Um, we're not subjects. Um, and I think so much about living with HIV and, and for me, so much of my experience been about throughout this entire blah, all of a sudden I can't talk. Um, so much of my experience in this has been figuring out um, how to access my power. I know what I know. 
I can, you know, being able, being able to speak truth, call it like it is and tell, use your words, tell your story when you want on your terms, if it works for you. Um, but there's so much power in that. And it's, it's ours. It's yours. It's mine. Um, and that, that power is the thing that kind of keeps us going when, you know, there are days when it really stinks to have HIV. Yeah, I was sitting with that. <laughs> there have been a lot more better days, though, is what I'll say. And on my bad days, I know that I have something to look forward to. Um, at least I'm not, I'm not dying. Like I'm not dying. No. And at one point, I thought that would have been the case. Um, you have so many questions over here in this um, comment box. I'm going to jump over. First, I'm going to remind everyone of our survey. Our, I mean, sorry, our evaluation for this episode. If you could please um, complete that. There is a link in the chat. Um, complete that. Let us know how we're doing so that we can make sure that we're meeting the needs of the people that we are serving and that the programming is doing is what it's supposed to do. Um, I wanted to go back to Joe's question. She said, do you often feel fatigued or is it just me? I mean, I've been living with HIV for 17 years and recently I had been feeling fatigued and burnt out too often. Are you noticing those changes? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, it's easy to look like the Energizer Bunny when you're having these kind of awesome, exciting, inspirational conversations. But um, there are days when you don't want to put your cape on. That's completely legitimate, totally honest and real. Um, I, I have days when I think, is anybody, does any of this matter? Does anybody hear me? Am I making an impact? Um, and I have a lot of days where I think I, can I, can I, I can't mobilize for me. There are days when I just can't mobilize for me. And those are the days when I know I need to mobilize for, like if I don't take the dog for a walk, he's gonna chew up everything I own in this house. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't call my dad and check in on him, he, you know, he could have a really low moment. I, if I don't pick up the kid from school, then they might take her away. I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I, there, there are these things like, I, I guess for me, I mean, Joe, you do so much and you are so involved out there. And um, I think one of the things that I had to learn in the first probably decade of being an AIDS activist was um, I had to be able to pull back. I had to be able to just take a step back and because if you don't take care of yourself, Ultimately, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. You can do it for a day. You can do it for a week. You can do it for a minute here and there. But ultimately, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. And so if that means today's not the day for me to do that long writing thing I've been putting off forever or whatever, and instead what I need to do is hike or shop or eat an entire thing of Ben and Jerry's by myself <laughs> or I don't know, go see some live music or I don't know. Probably many of you have much better habits than I do, but anyhow, do something <laughs> for myself. Um, then there's always tomorrow. 
then there's tomorrow. But if we burn ourselves up, there's not, you know, then what do we do with tomorrow? So. Loved it. Aw. <sighs> okay, I'm going to Olivia's because I just want to sit and just process everything that you're saying. It's just like so deep. I just want to go there with you. Um, Olivia said, this is totally selfish and not HIV specific, but I would love it if Dawn would talk for a sec about raising a little, little kiddo after raising older kids. Similarities, differences, additional wisdom, aches, pains, joys. Oh, so, um, anybody who doesn't know, I have, uh, a 20 year old daughter, um, and an 18 year old daughter and a six year old daughter. Um, which is a little bit of a spread. Um, uh, not that everybody needs me to go too deep in the weeds, but I didn't, I, I gave birth to the first two, but not the, the last one. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm 53 um, and she's six. Um, and so and we're in first grade. Um, <laughs> um, turns out first grade is a lot harder than I remember. <laughs> Um, those damn math worksheets are unbelievable. They're just endless. Um, but anyhow, um, it's, it, it is both wonderful. I mean, really wonderful in crazy ways because some of the things that I felt like went by so quickly with the older two, I'm, I'm catching, um, on this, on this, you know, second round. Um, and there are days when I am so damn tired. I cannot believe that I'm in first grade again. Um, <laughs> because, oh my God. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess the short way to say it is, is she's such an incredible gift. And I tell people that I've sort of cheated the system, you know, like a lot of my peers are just whole hanging out waiting for grandkids and I just kind of cut the line and <laughs> got a little one to play with now while I still feel like running down the driveway. Um, but it's, but it's, it's a lot and it's, and there are crazy moments. There are real mortality moments that happen for me with her that I, that I haven't had in a really long time where I'm like, okay, wait, so she's six and I'm 53. So when she's 18 or whatever, I'm going to be 70, 70, 70. <laughs> I was diagnosed with HIV at 19. There's 70 seems like almost arrogant. Um, but you know, who knows? Um, so, so I don't know that I'm really answering the question, Olivia, but I, you know, um, it's both like amazing and, and really hard really hard and really hard that she doesn't take the weekends off at all. Six, 6 a.m. on the weekends too. Damn it. Oh, um, I get to sleep till 730. <laughs> um, we're 730 not available here. right now. Yeah. <laughs> so. Just even, you know, at 34, I had my first one at 23. It is hard. It is like we have 11 and one. And it's hard, but I am, as you just said, I'm making sure I catch things that maybe I was moving too fast for um, the first time around. So I am definitely, I love it. I love it. It's hard. Though. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, <laughs> Very. there's magic, but it is, it is, um, you know, it is, it takes an enormous amount of you for sure. Plus you said if kids are in the stars for her, she's going to be like you doing because she's Portia a little bit older than me, not much, but she says she's gonna be like you. That's awesome. I was like to hear you say that you had two kids, like you birthed them. That was like that was in the early two thousands. Was it something still taboo to talk about then or to experience? You know, one of the crazy things. Yes. So, um, so I gave birth to Maddie in 2002, which if any of you are paying attention was the same time I was trying to birth the well project too. A <laughs> <laughs> little, oh. little bit bad timing. Um, but, um, 
Yeah. So the, um, so I had Maddie in 2002 and I had Sophie in 2004 and, um, it was crazy when I got pregnant with Maddie because I had been an, you know, an activist and kind of out in public, um, which not, not so many women were, um, I had like NBC news called and said, can we follow your pregnancy? And I, I said, no, um, but Maddie was on the cover of pause magazine and possibly the worst picture of either her or me ever. Um, <laughs> But uh, way back in the dark, in the dark ages. So it was a different time. It was a totally different time. And I have to say, um, I wrote an editorial for the Journal of the Association of Nurses and AIDS Care um, called HIV and Pregnancy, Tough Choices and the Right to Choose. And I spent a lot of time in the late 90s and early 2000s arguing that we had a right to decide, to choose to have a child up from one-to-one. And, um, and that made a pretty big um, impact. I made copies of it. And then when I went to deliver um, Maddie, when I got, when they, when I was admitted to have her, I gave copies to all of the nurses on the floor. <laughs> I know they were like, you are a freak. Um, but, that's okay. I, I was like, I'm sure you all, I just, I know that you all may have some questions. I, I, by the way, I gave birth to both of my daughters in Asheville, North Carolina. So, um, you know, not generally speaking, the, the S South is not known for being super open-minded in all situations. Anyway, so I, I, I brought that in and I, and I said, listen, so I understand that I might not be in a good position to answer questions later because I usually like to do that. But some people tell me that I won't want to answer questions while having a baby. So I thought you might like it if I brought this article I wrote and nobody has to read it. But if you want to read it, it's here and whatever. It was honestly the best medical experience I've ever had in my entire life, awesome. um, having my first daughter. Um, interestingly... There were a lot of people, I mean, I got equal parts of hate mail when, when the pause magazine story came out, she was three months old and I got buckets of mail and half was, this is amazing. Thank you for giving me hope. And the other half was hate mail about what a horrible human I was and how I was going to just orphan a child and how could I be so selfish and all of those other things. Um, interestingly, when I got pregnant with Sophie, I knew when I had Maddie that she needed a sibling. I just, I was like, this is, this is, I need this. I need to know that she has a sibling. My siblings are super important to me. And, and, you know, I just, I needed that for her. Um, and when I got pregnant with Sophie, interestingly, a lot more people had problems with it. A lot more people came out of the woodwork saying, okay, I could get that you had to have one baby because that was part of who you were and you needed it, but a second, like really you're going to tempt fate with a second. And I said, yeah, yeah, I am going to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I had her, but it was, those were, those were tough times. Those were still, those were, they weren't totally frontier days, but they were kind of frontier days. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I found my doctor by interviewing her. She was a family practice doctor. And, so, and I sat down with her. She agreed to go to coffee with me before I even started. And I said, so here's the deal. I have HIV. I've had it, you know, for 14 years. Um, and, but I really, I really want to have a baby. And um, I, I believe that's part of who I am and what I'm supposed to do. And if you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. I just need you to tell me that now. Um, how do you feel about this? And she was like, I totally support you. I'm completely in. And I'm like, all right, here we go. And uh, she was amazing. But because I was an advocate and an activist at that point, I knew enough and I, to be able to do that, to be able to sit down and say, this is what I want and can you be a part of it or not? 
Wow. As you're talking, like, I'm over here crying. I'm sneak wiping tears off because, like, listening to you just being able to advocate and your advocacy for yourself then, I know has to indirectly, indirectly be impact my my relationship with my providers to, you know, say, yeah, you can have a kid or yay, yeah, because they, you know, people had come before me who did it. So as you're speaking now, I'm thinking of, you know, my experience with breastfeeding a child. Like mm. we pushed the envelope a little bit on having kids. Now I'm pushing the envelope, you know, along with other women and breastfeeding. And, and when you say hate mail, it's not like hate snail mail now. It's instant behind mm. no profile pictures, you know, yes. the hate. And when you talk about the comments about, you know, being selfish or, you know, why would you want to put a child at risk? Like society has to give you some type of permission for you to make the decisions with your body because your body hosts, you know, a virus. Um, That's crazy. So just a parallel, but thank you because I'm sure that, you know, the work that we're doing now is going to help people that come after us. And it's just going to keep going. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to be a part of something so much greater than me. Um, we are coming to the end. So I'm make, I want to make sure I get a few things. And we have Lillian here. She's from um, Kenya. She's watching from Kenya. I absolutely love that. And I wanted to go back up to Chrissy because I think that she had wrote a few different comments about, um, she seems to be a younger woman and, she was born with HIV, she said, and it looks like she was watching us from YouTube. So she said, I was born with HIV and I'm not aging healthily because of the meds from the 90s and current regimen. Just wanted to make sure that I acknowledged her here in the um, during the show because I'm so grateful that, you know, we're reaching people. We, and there are so many experiences to be shared. Can um, I say one thing to Chrissy? I know we're running out of time, absolutely. but... Um, I, I feel that I was diagnosed, you know, I, I, I started treatment. I tell people now I'm a long-term survivor of protease inhibitors um, instead of HIV. So I've been on treatment um, since 1992. Um, and so I, I know, um, I, and we did it all wrong in the beginning. Um, but I, I do think that there are things that we can do to stay well. And, you know, if there's anything, if, any, I can help in any way, just answer questions or whatever, please reach out. I absolutely, absolutely love that. Um, this has been such a great episode and I'm so sad that it's only an hour. We could talk forever. Thank you so much for putting this time aside for us today. Thank you for what you've done with the Well Project. Can you give us in 60 seconds our last where the Well Project's name came from? The Well Project. Oh, well, um, originally it was going to be the Women's Village because I liked the idea of all women gathering around the well in the village to share information and support each other. And um, but then Hillary Clinton had a village. And so because um, <laughs> it was 20 years ago um, and we started talking about gathering at the well and it became the Well Project. And some of that is old history from not wanting to put HIV in the name. Um, the first organization I started was called WISE, and it was another one that was also didn't have HIV in the name so that women anywhere could use materials that said the Well Project or WISE without people, without it automatically outing them. So that the Well Project is about staying well and gathering together and sharing that information and going on our way. Wow, thank you. I learned a lot. That was Bose's question. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you. Um, the survey monkey is in the chat. That's our evaluation for this episode. Please, once again, guys, please fill that out. Guys and ladies, please fill that out for us. Thank you so much. Join us again next month for our next episode, which will be episode 24 of A Girl Like Me Live. Thank you all. And bye. Thank you.